0: 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. It's the Apostle Paul writing to the church in the uh, Greek city of Corinth. He says, All things are permitted for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun sexual immorality. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is the word of God. God. And you can be seated. From this passage, I'll preach from the title, Resurrection Bodies. Resurrection Bodies. Imagine with me for a second a society which believed that how a person treated their body didn't really impact the essence of their personhood. People might understand their bodies as tools to help them accomplish certain goals, have desirable experiences or attain pleasurable moments. Food, sex, and other sources of bodily pleasure would be understood not as goods pointing beyond themselves to a greater good, but simply as means to temporary satisfaction. In this imagined world, corporations, institutions, and governments would be free to treat people under their influence as resources from which could be extracted the maximum amount of capital. In such a society, certain bodies would come to signify superiority and mastery, while other bodies would be uh, subject to plunder and even death. This imagined society is, of course, our own. But it was also the sort of world faced by the early Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. The Corinthian society and ours share a characteristic I will call disembodiment. The assumption that bodies are separate from the core of our personhood, what it means to be human. For us, this assumption of disembodiment allows, for example, a corporation like Amazon, to build a business model around replacing their entire warehouse workforce every eight months. Millions of people replaced every eight months. These are bodies to be used up rather than persons to honor with meaningful and dignified work. Now Corinth didn't have Amazon, but the same disembodied ethic allowed non-citizens to be enslaved, the poor to be exploited, and sex to be commodified. And it was into this situation that the traveling apostle spoke a surprising word. Paul taught the Corinthians that their bodies mattered because they had been united to Christ. Bodies mattered. It sounds self-evident, but I think our quick review of what the Corinthian society shares with our own reveals that our bodies are generally treated with far less of the honor that Paul says they deserve. Think, for example, about the news which leaked this week about the likelihood of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Notice how the loudest voices on both sides of that ideological battle tend to refer to others' bodies, whether the in utero body or the pregnant body, as something less than fully human. Obviously, this disembodied dishonor has very real-world implications. For instance, in a society which treats bodies as a means to an end, we are led to believe that self-gratifying consumption is the best that we can hope for. I don't watch a whole lot of uh, live TV, but it's uh, NBA playoffs time, which means I'm getting my yearly dose of commercials. Elliot and I were watching the Warriors-Grizzlies game last night, and he asked me, Elliot, I hope I'm getting your quote more or less right. What kind of things do you think they are most trying to sell us in these commercials? And we talked about it for a minute, and we both agreed that that cars came in first. There seemed to be more car commercials than anything else. Followed closely by prescription medication. (laughs) Why it is that we can advertise prescription medication in this country Maybe someone can explain that to me. Insurance and cryptocurrency seems to be the big one this year. If you doubt our collective commitment to self-gratifying consumption, just invite a few multinational corporations into your living room to convince you of all the things you really need to make you happy. Our corporate guests look to our bodies as sources of revenue while we depend on them to bring some temporary satisfaction. During this Easter season, we've seen how the new creation inaugurated by Jesus' triumph over sin, death, and the devil change how we engage with the entire created order. But the implications of new creation are closer and more intimate as well, incorporating the skin, muscle, arteries, and brain tissue, which create the canvas for the image of God in each of us. How does the resurrection change our relationship to our bodies? This is the question I want to try to ask and answer today, and here's my best attempt at an answer. Christ's resurrection frees us from disembodied consumption for embodied worship. The resurrection of Jesus frees us from disembodied consumption for embodied worship. Now, given the sort of world that we share with the Corinthians, I think this is a profound assertion. But to see why, I think we need to unpack that claim just a little bit. And I want to do so by way of three different questions. First, why is disembodied consumption a problem? Second, how does the resurrection change how we view our bodies, how we treat our bodies? And then finally, how does a resurrection posture toward our bodies lead to embodied worship? Does that make sense? First, why is it that disembodied consumption is a problem? In these few verses, Paul is responding to some questions and assertions put to him in a letter by the Corinthian church. All things are lawful for me, they say. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. These assertions and their questions reveal a a view of the world that is hierarchical in nature, where the spirit of a person is elevated above their body. This is a kind of metaphysical dualism that sees the world divided into two different substances, matter and non-matter, the body and the soul. This metaphysical dualism would eventually evolve into the Gnostic mystery religions, which prioritized the spiritual and neglected the physical. I was in a coffee shop uh, this week. I think it was this week. Maybe it was the week before. Uh, Minding my own business. Uh, And there were two college students who I assumed to be undergraduate college students from a nearby university, which shall remain nameless, having a very uh, uh, impassioned and detailed and in-depth conversation about their different astrological signs. And they were describing to each other how the months that they were born in impacted their personalities and impacted how they saw the world and, and how they moved through the world. And they exhibited a whole lot of confidence in this way of understanding themselves and their place in the world. I mention this just to say that we are in some ways inheritors of that dualistic understanding of the universe, which privileges some sort of distant spiritual reality over the enfleshed nature of our bodies. In contrast, uh, the Israelites, the, the Hebrew people, had a very different cosmology, Uh, For them, the the grounding text would have come from Genesis, perhaps Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. In this cosmology, we we, we see that humanity is is made and formed from the, the real material stuff of earth that that real material stuff of earth matters, and that God breathes God's breath into that real material stuff of earth to create humanity. There would have been no language about bodies separated from persons. No one would talk about having a body. If anything, people would talk about being bodies, being fully embodied creatures this is not how we think about ourselves. And the problem when we succumb to that dualistic understanding of the world is that we, in a sense, separate ourselves from God. Paul says the body is meant not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, the Lord for the body. When we see ourselves in a disembodied way, we look for other things to fill ourselves, to give ourselves meaning. When we don't see ourselves as having been created fully, embodied as for the Lord, we open ourselves up to uh, the, 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 the uh, can I say, deceptive and, and, and uh, attractive promises of the commercials that I was watching last night disembodiment also leads to suffering, particularly suffering for vulnerable people. In a 2021 Washington Post article about a lawsuit against one of the largest internet providers of pornography, the the report detailed how the site hosted depictions of all sorts of of non-consensual sex of the most violent kind, including depictions Of minors and that's as specific as I will get though the article provided more detail to quote the article in addition to accusing the firm of letting users post non-consensual content the lawsuit alleges that the parent corporation also bought in bulk content produced by human traffickers using non-consensual content was key to this corporation's business plan The suit says, re-traumatizing victims. And then a quote. Plaintiffs in this case are human beings, victimized first by their original abuser and then repeatedly by the defendants in the case. Interesting that the lawsuit has to spell out that the victims are what? Human beings. The assumption is that they are just bodies to be consumed, trafficked, sold, purchased. I read an interesting book earlier this year by another uh, Washington Post columnist, Christine Emba, called Rethinking Sex. And in it, she writes this. It was a curious thing, interviewing people about what they wanted from sex. Again and again, they would mention intimacy, emotion, closeness, being seen, but then they would follow up with a disclaimer as if they had misstepped and outed themselves as repressed, swoony virgins none of us are supposed to be. And then she quotes, of course, that's just my opinion. There are plenty of people who have truly casual sex and don't think about it at all. Do you know any of these people, I ask? Usually the answer is no. This sort of disembodied consumption leads us to treating ourselves and others as far less than sacred image bearers of a living God. And so the questions become, what do I need? What do I want? What can I get or take from you? I read an article this week. Uh, I wasn't, not even for the sermon, I just bumped into it. I was like, well, I got to use this about uh, um, the, the Google's uh, web browser, Chrome. I know some of y'all work for Google. So, uh, you know, this is what the article said. This is the sole purpose Chrome was built around, extracting and monetizing as much of your personal life as possible while delivering good performance. We are the product of so much of what we do online the thing that is being extracted from. So Paul uses food and sex as examples of how self-gratifying consumption results in treating ourselves and others as less than sacred image bearers of God. So it's fair to ask, what is our relationship to these two different examples? Surely we could add other examples as well, but let's just stick with these two. What is your relationship to food? What is your relationship to sex? As you consider the posture of your relationship to these two examples, what does it reveal about your understanding of the world? Does it reveal an understanding of people as fully embodied image bearers of God? Or is it possible, and I would say likely for all of us given the air that we breathe, that we have succumbed to a dualistic, disembodying way of understanding the world and those around us? Christ's resurrection frees us from disembodied consumption for embodied worship. Disembodied consumption is a problem because it reduces us to our cravings cravings that need to be satisfied, and it reduces others to objects that can be used to satisfy our cravings. Maggie, can I have my water bottle, please? Thank you. Here's the second question. How does the resurrection change how we treat our bodies? Can I just say that every Mother's Day, I end up preaching some really awkward sermon? I don't, it's not on purpose, I promise. But Pastor Michelle can tell you, like, it's happened a lot. Maybe that's just what we do here. How does the resurrection change how we treat our bodies? So clearly, Paul disagrees with the Corinthian dualism that's impacting those early followers of Jesus. How how does he respond? Again, let's remember that, that Paul is steeped in this Jewish understanding of what it means to be human, dust and divine breath, fully embodied people, Paul says, who are meant for the Lord image bears of the living God. With this vantage point, Paul then surveys the, the Greco-Roman culture, which tr- seems to treat food as fuel and sex simply reduced for its momentary pleasure. Now, I, I realize that in a sermon like this, it could sound like we're, we're just talking about sex. And so I want to remind us that Paul talks about food here as well. I I have an author whose work I really like called Wendell Berry. He's a a farmer and and a writer. And in his essay, The Pleasures of Eating, Berry writes about the impact of the ever greater distance between the average person sitting down to a meal and God's creation, the creational ecosystems which actually provide our food. Berry says, the result of this distance is a kind of solitude, unprecedented in human experience in which the eater may think of eating as first a purely commercial transaction between him and a supplier, and then purely as an appetitive transaction between him and his food. the the, the disembodying urges in our culture keep us from the harmony that God created us to experience with the rest of his creation. This includes the food that sustains our lives. So Paul stands from his vantage point. He surveys the Greco-Roman culture that is impacting the early church, and then he responds, and he asks, do you not know that your bodies are men? Are members of Christ? Your bodies are members of Christ. Paul's assertion here hangs on the reality of the resurrection. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Now, to get the logic of what Paul is doing here, and I think it's very important for us, we need to understand some of the detail. Paul was responding to uh, the fact that there were some Christian men in the Corinthian church who were regularly traveling uh, up to the, the, the small mountain that stood at the base of the city, where at the, who, who had on, on the mountaintop was the Temple to Aphrodite. And this temple was staffed by temple prostitutes. Paul is responding to these uh, Christian men who were regularly taking advantage of these temple prostitutes and rationalizing it through this kind of dualistic understanding of themselves. It's just my body. It's just her body. I can continue living according to the pattern of this world, to the status quo, because it's just a body. Do you not know, Paul says, that your bodies are members of Christ? Paul says, in reality, this is a situation of two fully embodied image bearers of God entering, by God's design, one flesh union. Regardless of what the Corinthians thought was happening, regardless of the separation of spirit and body that they had understood, Paul says these are two fully embodied people becoming one. And this is especially problematic because Paul says we have been resurrected with Christ and our bodies are members of Christ. He uses the same word, members, for our relationship with Christ and the experience of those Christian men going to the prostitutes, members, a one flesh union of great intimacy. Now, this is important because many of us have understood our relationship with Jesus to be this kind of very spiritual matter. We've invited Jesus in some kind of ethereal way into our hearts, We've pictured our relationship with Jesus in highly spiritual, uh, kind of otherworldly terms. Paul says that our relationship with Jesus is an embodied union with Jesus. But anyone anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The word for spirit can also be translated as breath. Anyone united with the Lord becomes one spirit breath with the Lord. Echoes of Genesis chapter 2, God breathing his breath into people. And it is through the resurrected Jesus, the one who took on our flesh, who became enfleshed on our behalf, through Jesus, we are being put back together. The breath of God is being breathed back into our lungs. Born into a world cracked by sin, our bodies and spirits have been pulled apart, but in Christ we are being made whole. Our lusts have been confused for our loves, but in Christ we are being made whole. Our thinking has been pitted against our feeling, but in Christ we are being made whole. I would say it this way, in Christ our sin-stolen breath has been returned. In Jesus, we can breathe again. So I want to do something a little different. I want to pause before we get to this last question. I actually want to invite you to just reflect quietly for a moment. So get comfortable in your chair. If you're taking notes, set your notes down. If you have your phone in your hand, put it away. Get comfortable. Close your eyes if you're able. I want you to just reflect for a moment on the fact that you are an embodied image bearer of God. That your flesh and blood are not accidents, are not barriers to this relationship that you've been created for. Consider for a moment that your body has been united with Christ, the preeminent Son of God, creator of the world, taking on a human body, and that in Christ, you have been united to Christ. As you feel your own breathing, consider that the spirit of the living God fills you embodied daughter and son of God, united to your creator. Not your idealized body, not your in-shape body, not your perfectly well body, not your sinless body. This body, with its wounds and its griefs, its longings, its hopes, its literal scars, this body, has been united with the body of Jesus who bears in his hands and his sides and his feet the marks of his love for you. Would you hold that thought just for a moment in your body? Christ's resurrection frees us from disembodied consumption for embodied worship. The resurrection changes how we treat our bodies, how we feel our bodies, how we experience our bodies by uniting those same bodies with Jesus. And then finally, my last question How does a resurrection posture toward our bodies lead to embodied worship? Again, if the Greco-Roman dualism, if the dualism of our own day leads to a disembodied posture towards things like food or sex... Food is a momentary pleasure or fuel, not as a gift of creation. Sex as a non-intimate physical encounter where emotions and vulnerability are to be set aside. We should acknowledge that this disembodied dualism works best for those with the most privilege and power. For the wealthy men who could frequent the temple to Aphrodite to take advantage of the temple prostitutes, the, the status quo was working pretty good for the wealthy families who had access to the best food and wine that was brought to the Corinthian Peninsula from around the world, the status quo was working pretty fine. But the marginalized women for whom prostitution was their only means of survival, whose bodies were resources to serve the abusive needs of deities and men, well, they understood the terrible consequences of disembodying consumption. The poor whose ancestral lands were taken by the empire, the enslaved captured in colonizing wars, they understood that the opulent feasts and lavish meals so common among Rome's elite came at their expense. And frankly, even if the status quo seemed to be working for the powerful, Paul made it clear that their participation in a society which separated body from spirit was tearing them apart as well. So if the destruction of disembodying consumption is the result of the kind of dualism we share with the Corinthians, well, what then are the results from a resurrection posture toward our bodies? And I want to call this embodied worship. That a resurrection posture toward our bodies leads us to embodied worship. And I want to show you what I understand to be Paul's train of thought here with this very sophisticated uh, flowchart. The resurrection. Paul begins with the resurrection. He says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. This is where it all begins. This is where everything hinges for Paul. This resurrection then leads to embodied union with Jesus. Your bodies are members of Christ, Paul says. The resurrection leads to embodied union with Jesus. That union with Jesus, Paul says, means that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are not our own. We have been brought with a price. So far, so good? Finally, Paul says because of the resurrection, which has brought us into embodied union with Christ, making our bodies temples of the Holy Spirit, Paul ends by then saying, therefore glorify God in your body. Because of the resurrection... We experience embodied union with Christ, which means our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, allowing us to glorify God with our bodies. And I want to say that, that, that one way to, to, to sort of describe glorifying God is worship, is worshiping God with our bodies. How do we do this? How do we glorify God with our bodies? How do we, we live out this embodied worship? Well, for one, in a disembodying world, embodied worship will mean leaving some stuff behind. That's the repentance part. Each of us have been impacted by a disembodying world. Each of us in some way have succumbed to it. So Paul, just using shorthand, says flee sexual immorality, right? That's the the leaving behind. There's an acknowledgement that we have succumbed to the disembodying tendencies of our world. There's some stuff we have to repent of. But importantly, notice how the passage ends. Glorify God. So while there are sinful acts of disembodiment that we need to turn from, the emphasis here is on what we are turning toward. As those who were created to love God with our whole selves, but who have been taken apart by sin, we have now experienced the healing of the resurrection, the reintegration of our bodies and souls, hearts, and minds. We have been intimately, physically united with God. The spirit breath of God fills our bodies. And it's true, we still inhabit a world that tries to break us down into discrete exploitable components but God will raise us by his power it's true we still bear the scars inflicted by those who could only see our bodies as resources for selfish gratification but our bodies are members of Christ it's true We are still surrounded by temples to the gods who try to break us down, wear us out, and suck us dry. But my body and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit because you were bought with a price. Therefore, we can glorify God with our bodies. We do not have to succumb to the hierarchies of our world. We don't have to agree to be sliced and diced for somebody else's bottom line. We don't have to play by the rules which keep letting a few people win at the expense of everybody else. When it comes to our sexuality, we can worship God with our bodies. When it comes to our posture toward food, we can worship God with our bodies. When it comes to how we treat money, how we care for our neighbors, how we respond to the news, how we heal from our trauma, how we plan for the future, and so on, we can worship God with our bodies. I hope the gospel is good news to a couple of us this morning. The Son of God took on our bodies so that we might be united in our bodies to Him. You are a member of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit fills your entire being. You are a temple of the Spirit of God, the location of God's glory breaking into this world. So you get to glorify God with your body everywhere. You have been set free from the dualism which separates body and soul, from the dehumanizing spirit of the age which satisfies the self-gratifying desires of the powerful at the expense of everybody else. You have been set free from the false choice of loving your body or caring for your soul. Christ's resurrection frees us from disembodied consumption for embodied worship. A resurrection posture toward our bodies leads to embodied worship because our whole self is available for worship. God created humanity in his image. He created us as embodied creatures in his image. Flesh and bone, muscle and nerve, memory and imagination, all of this is what it means to be fully human. All of this is part of how we live into the purpose of worshiping the creator with our whole selves. There is a lie which has persisted across the generations that bodies are not worthy of honor, that bodies are tools to be used or resources to exploit, that there is no inherent honor or value to our bodies that the glory of God cannot be glimpsed in every single embodied person who has ever lived. The lie is so old that it's hard for us to imagine an alternative. And yet, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that alternative. In Christ's resurrected body, the lie has been undone. And God's original creational purpose has been revealed again in its beauty in our bodies. So turn to the infleshed Savior again this week. Breathe deeply of the Spirit's presence in your body this week. What sin tore apart the resurrected Jesus is reconciling, restoring, and renewing in your body. You are a whole person. You are a being healed person. You are an image bearer of the living God person. You carry in your very body the evidence of Christ's new creation. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we thank you for your presence and your closeness. We thank you that the implications of the resurrection are cosmic and total and universal, that all of creation is learning to praise your name and at the same time so close as our very breath. And so where we have succumbed, to the dehumanizing patterns that have become so normal around us, would you put us back together? Where we have written off parts of ourselves as beyond important, as not quite the place for you to move and to speak, would you pull us together? Where we have relegated parts of ourselves as um, not valuable enough for your healing, (laughs) Would you make us hungry to be healed? We uh, come to this reality, each of us, in our own particular ways, uh, wounded. Wounded by uh, a society and, and, and the people formed by a society who have succumbed to the devaluing of bodies. We, none of us, come without a limp, without a painful part of our story. And yet, as one prayed for us earlier, we want to believe that you're doing a work of healing in our our bodies. So for each of us this morning, Holy Spirit of the living God, would you speak a word of affirmation over our embodied selves? Would you remind us that we have been created in your image? Would you increase our faith such that we could somehow this week experience the union that you say is ours with our Lord Jesus? And would you remind us that with each breath that we take, we have been filled with the living breath of our God? Even as I ask these things, they, there is a, a part of me that says the, this sounds too strange, too out of step with the status quo that we each have to navigate all week long. So we are aware that we are asking for you to do something, Lord Jesus, in us. Put us together, please. Show us how your new creation has drawn so close. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.